Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough. My co-host, the one and only Man One, is on assignment. Man, do I have an impressive guest for you guys today. Scott Bedberry is a world-renowned brand consultant author and speaker who has worked with some of the biggest brands in the world. His best-selling book, Brand New World, is a must-read for anyone working in business today. And trust me, Scott knows what he's talking about. He earned his stripes building two of the world's most beloved brands, Nike and Starbucks. Yeah, you heard me, Nike and Starbucks. In his early days, As head of advertising at Nike, Scott created the Transcendent Just Do It campaign with his creative partners at White and Kennedy, which featured, of course, a young Michael Jordan and a young Spike Lee. So how cool is that? Scott was also chief marketing officer at Starbucks during its explosive growth period in the 90s. And at Starbucks, he created the third place brand strategy, which really helped fuel Starbucks growth during those years. And that brand strategy was really about making Starbucks a third place for you and I to gather and go outside of our home and work. And so it was really insightful positioning that helped Starbucks. And so Scott is just fantastic. I mean, I met him a few years ago when we were working together in the healthcare space at Kaiser Permanente. He's a super busy guy, so I'm really grateful that he agreed to sit down for an interview during which we discussed lots of topics, even his new upcoming book, which I know you're going to want to hear about and I can't wait to read. But before we hear from Scott, I want to thank you for tuning in to our 111th episode of the Not Real Art Podcast. Be sure, please, to like this episode and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already done so. Your likes and follows help ensure you won't miss any uh, new episodes, and it helps please the algorithm gods, which helps us. So thank you for that. March is International Women's Month, and we are going to celebrate in a big way. To help us celebrate and honor the power of women, we have asked our friend and artist Aaron Yoshi to take over the podcast during the whole month of March. We're giving Aaron complete creative control of the podcast, and I know it's going to be awesome. 
Aaron is going to be talking to some amazing women in the arts and hearing some incredible stories and dropping lots of knowledge and wisdom. So heads up and stay tuned as we celebrate International Women's Month in March with Aaron Yoshi as your fearless host here at the Not Real Art Podcast. I know you're going to love it. She's awesome, and it's going to be fantastic. In the meantime, be sure to go to our website, notrealart.com, to sign up for our newsletter and stay informed about all the cool stuff we do for artists and art lovers. On our website, you can do all kinds of cool things. You can sign up for our artist grant. You can buy affordable contemporary creative art through our partnership with Sugar Press. You can even support us through Patreon, and we'd be really grateful if you did. So definitely go to notrealart.com and check out all the good stuff that we have there. Now, like I was saying, our guest today is world-class. Scott Bedberry has helped build two of the world's most famous and consequential brands, Nike and Starbucks. His business books are bestsellers and must-reads for any executive or entrepreneur. And he even has a new book coming out soon, so... I know you're going to want to hear about that. So without further ado, let's get into this and hear from the one and only Scott Bedberry. Scott Bedberry, welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for the uh, invitation, Scott. Hey, man, it's great to have you here. So are you a podcast guy? Do you listen to podcasts? Yeah, I do. You know, I've been toying with the idea of creating one, and I will around the book when it comes out here later next year. And I think it's just it's just a great way to, you know, take storytelling to another level and make it a lot more personal. So congrats, too, on the work you're doing. I think it's phenomenal. Thank you, man. Thank you very much. Is there a, a favorite podcast when you when you have a break in the action, maybe when you're on the, the treadmill or something you're listening to? Is there something you like to listen to? You know, lately it's been a lot of politics. Yeah, right. No kidding. A lot of comedy. Sure. Uh, what's the one? It's called Something the Bastards. It's hilarious. It's, I don't know if you follow it, but. I'll uh, check it out. Yeah. Something the Bastards. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, uh, well, it's kind of behind the the, the wing nuts, the, the people that are um, just swimming in conspiracy theories. And it's just, it's just, it's just a great way to kind of make light of something that has uh, been near and dear to my heart for four years, writing this book on the collapse of trust. So uh, I try and get some respite, some comedy, and look at the the funnier side of these things. Where Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, you brought it up first. So let's get into this. Tell me about the new book. Well, you know, I, I wrote my first and my only book 20 years ago, published it almost 20 years ago, and I never really intended to write a second book. I'm not like a serial book writer. I'm not a Seth Godin, you know, or... Uh, I just don't, you know, kick a book out every two years. But enough has changed that I've, about four years ago, just a few weeks before the 2016 election, I decided, you know, for a guy that spent his career building trust in institutions to see this war on truth, intentional war on truth, degrade so much trust so quickly. It was like, it was all fighting words to me. So I met with my publisher and my agent in New York and, and they asked me what I wanted to write about. And I said, I wanted to take on the war on truth. And come up with eight or 10 principles on how to rebuild it, you know, in this, uh, this disinformation age. So it's been Herculean. My son, you know, about a year into it, he said, you know, dad, you're writing three books. And I said, I might do. <laughs> George Lucas did a similar thing. Did he not? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I go, Nick, I'm not writing two more books, man. This is it. I'm just doing this. And, uh, and he said, well, you're like the dog that chased the mail truck, but instead you caught the post office. And in this case, in this case, the, the wow, post- your son's smarter than you are. <laughs> oh, much smarter. He's been doing a lot of the editing. He's he's hilarious, you know. But 
Yeah, he said in this case, the, the post office is full of Russians and they're opening and rewriting our email or our mail. But anyway, it was, it's yeah. been, a, been a journey. So the, the, the kind of the core idea of the book is to, is to in my words, you, you help me out here. Is it, is it about how we get back to truth, how we get to empathy? Like what is the core uh, central truth of the book? It's truth is a very subjective thing, as you know. Yeah, you know, Plato and Aristotle and a lot of guys smarter than me gave up trying to to define it in absolute terms. So it doesn't really exist in absolute terms. It's too full of bias, right? Personal truth. Trust is the crucible. Trust is everything. You know, we don't democracies don't work without trust. Human relationships don't work without trust. And what I found though is the things that took decades, if not centuries, to to reach a level of trust have been decimated. And some of that pretty maliciously, you know, whether it's the free press or, you know, some of these constitutional balances to power, whatever. Uh, I think, you know, there's a playbook there for destroying governments by disinformation. So, you know, and when I wrote the, the last book, I made some predictions about the future and I made four and only three made the books. My editor cut the fourth one out of decorum. But the, <laughs> it, was, you know, it was like, it was 2000, you know, Zuckerberg, I don't think it shaved yet. Social media was a couple of years away, but, you know, having met Bezos in 95 and, and I dove into Silicon Valley in 1998 after leaving Starbucks and Nike to see if what worked for sneakers and coffee could possibly work in an all digital world. And it did. It was profound to watch the Internet start to shake the foundations of so many things. And one of the things that I just couldn't get out of my head was how quickly I thought the Internet would reveal inauthenticity, you know, companies that say one thing and do another. And that took a lot longer than I thought it would. You know, mostly it outed bad dictators for a while. So the first three predictions, I think one was that the internet would be God's truth serum to business. I think the second one was that the days of the corporate comb over were uh, numbered, proof that Trump never read my book, but I'm not offended by that. I don't think he reads many books. And the third one- Can, can he even read? <laughs> I don't know. And- uh, yeah. And the third one was the world had become so transparent. Everyone should wear underwear that fits. And I'm amazed my editor, Rick Cott, left that one in. I just kind of <laughs> threw that one out there. But the fourth prediction, which I really wish we had left in, I was, you know, I'm sure you were too in the late 90s, you know, listening in and watching kind of what was going on with these internet trolls, you know, in the chat rooms you know, on Yahoo and wherever else. And these sort of anonymous asshats just, you know, raining hell on everybody. Right. Yeah. And it struck me, the fourth principle was, or the fourth prediction was that the internet would eventually reveal the inner ass in humanity. And I think, and I think that's kind of come to pass. I think we've, it's revealed, you know, perhaps far more than we had thought it would, and it will continue to do so, right? So I think the book is also about preparing for transparency, right? It's also about the power of storytelling, which has never been greater than right now. And the digital weaponization of human needs and human weaknesses, which we've seen through social media. So the book opens up, obviously, ground zero. I'm with Zuckerberg, page one, chapter one, talking to him in 2010 about thinking about taking some responsibility for the power that he had amassed already with 500 million users and, and tipping towards a billion without breathing hard. But, you know, he'd have none of it, right? I still don't think he kind of gets that. So, yeah, the book, I'm proud of it. I think the 10 principles, my goal has been they'll be as timeless as the ones I wrote 20 years ago in a new brand world. Those are all still standing the test of time, too. But can't yeah. wait to get out. Yeah. So when is the big day? When I know you've been uh, working on this for a while. Do we have a uh, release date yet? No, we don't. It's going to be we're, the manuscript's pretty much finished and it's going to go into legal and all that sort of stuff here in the next month or two. I would think spring, you know, April, May, June. 
I'll keep you guys posted on it, but it should be, you know, it depends in this, in this day and age in publishing, you know, they can smash the gas pedal one way or the other and move something up or push something back. So it's kind of out of my control, but uh, as soon as we can. Right, right, right. So in terms of the, the 10 principles that are coming out in the new book, what organizations or brands do you think today without having read your book, like who's personifying some of these yeah, well, I might be slightly biased and it is chapter one. Chapter one is basically uh, the title of the chapter is not all unicorns can fly. And it is a comparison of Facebook with Airbnb. And those are two platforms, right? Essentially, you know, two technology companies. And one of them believed in the need for trust at every touch point, you know, and the other maybe not so much. So I think there's a, a teachable moment right now that, you know, with disruptive power comes the need for, you know, uh, a correlation and trust. You know, you can't just be a wrecking ball anymore, move, move fast and break stuff. And I think we're finally, finally, you know, 10 years later, seeing some changes coming toward social media, specifically Facebook, and to some extent, I suspect uh, Twitter and Google but, and YouTube. But I think that's the thing that has changed so much. It is this weaponization of information. And we've never... You know, I shouldn't say that. I'm sure that when, you know, the radio came out, people went, oh, my God, you know, that's the most crazy thing they'd ever heard. You know, the power of the theater of the mind and all that. Even the telegraph, right? That, that sent the Pony Express asunder after one year. And then with the newspapers, yellow journalism, all that, and then clearly TV. But I think with the Internet, we have kind of like the you know, splitting the atom. We've, we've created something of such power, but with very little foresight to how it could be used how it might be abused, you know, and then perhaps most important, how you might defuse it, right? And I don't think our institutions today are up to the match to do what we need to do. Yeah, I mean, because what we need, right, is we need sort of thoughtful, introspective, strategic leadership. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> call me naive, call me romantic, but uh, I don't think we're going to get there. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was said by someone much smarter than I that it took all of us to create the internet we have and it's going to create all of us to create the internet we want, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't think we can sit back and let government figure this all out for us. And God knows we can't let the companies go figure this out on their own. They're not going to do it. So I think it is, it's a time for everybody to be heard, step up and, and by our own actions. I mean, you look at the biggest advertisers today, they are enabling, you know, some of this to happen. And I know there were some efforts in boycotting Facebook specifically last year, earlier this year, you know, that's a sort of withered away. I don't even know where that's at now. But I think if we decry what's happened to truth and, we've, and we decry this information overload and we don't know who to trust anymore, look inward, you know, because propaganda only works when it comes from somebody or something we trust. And I think all of us have forwarded something that probably wasn't entirely true at some point. So I think, you know, the buck stops with each of us. And I think that's, we kind of got to start a movement in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I forget the guy's name, the founder of Whole Foods several years ago wrote a book called Conscious Capitalism. I don't know if you read it or not, but you know, the, this, this was supposed to be an oxymoron, right? I mean, uh, business is supposed to share, are supposed to um, only worry about the interests of their shareholders, return a profit. They, you know, they shouldn't have to worry about a triple bottom line or social good or climate change or any, any number of these things. And uh, certainly this idea of conscious capitalism feels like it shouldn't be some, you know, dare I say, s socialist idea or, or ideal. You know, why can't for-profit companies, you know, publicly traded on Wall Street, get behind the common good? 
and 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 build trust and loyalty through showing and proving that they actually give a shit. Yeah. Well, I think fortunately in the last couple of years, we're seeing a bit of that, right? We're seeing everybody from, you know, Benioff did a great speech, I guess it was two or three years ago at Davos, followed up by the chairman CEO of BlackRock, I think, if I remember correctly, a year later, but basically saying, you know, the days of just taking care of your shareholders are, are done, they're gone for a publicly traded company. Yeah. If you look at this, you know, millennials, I happen to have two of them, 31 and 24 years old. And, you know, God love them. Thank God for them. They, you know, they're smarter than I ever was at that age. And I think they cheated because they had the internet, you know, in grade school. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I had to beg my mother to, to drive me to the library and go through a, you know, the, 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 what do they call that? The index card system. The, the Dewey decimal system. Exactly. <laughs> the, card, the card, the card uh, yeah. Yeah, system. Scroll, yeah. scroll through the microfish tape. Yeah, right, you know. right. Anyway, they have a, a better sense. Most of them do, I think. And they're raising the bar in terms of the kind of company they want to work for, right? Mm -hmm. wow. The brand they want to support, you know, even though they know to be conscious in that way sometimes might cost them a few bucks. And that's really hard right now, you know, economically speaking, where we're at. So I admire them for that. And I do think, and I do say this in the last few pages of my first book, I do make a call for the triple bottom line, you know, 20 years ago, because that was kind of new back then. Yeah. But it was my hope that if the book would even just take one big corporation and make it a better company, not just a bigger company, all the effort I put into writing that first book would be worth it. And I, and I just live that philosophy. I think companies need to be better, not just bigger and better in every way, not just better products, but how they treat their people, their employees, the communities, serve the environment, yada, yada. So we're finally now getting to a place where there's some better reporting systems. You know, 20 years ago, it was kind of ambiguous in terms of you know, how much better did you do this year than last year on your environmental right. impact? That was a little fuzzy. So we're getting there. And I think the millennials will hold everybody's feet to the flame, perhaps better than we did. Well, so, you know, at the risk of oversimplifying all the heady stuff that you're talking about, for me, I've always been amazed at how little, well, based on my experience, my very, you know, singular experience, how little companies tend to prioritize the basic idea of customer service, right? So if you can if you can dimensionalize and build out this idea of what customer service means, whether it is being a good steward of limited natural resources or creating an end-to-end uh, recycling kind of program or whatever it might be, think of it in terms of customer service, you are ultimately going to build loyalty. You're going to have customers for life if you demonstrate outstanding customer service. Yeah. And I think the core of that is a word you mentioned a few minutes ago is empathy. And I think that's what we're also missing. And it is in looking back through the manuscript a couple of weeks ago, I was just trying to do some tight ed light editing and it's in every chapter one way or the other. And I think it is what we're missing. And there's a big difference between sympathy and empathy. You know, sympathy is like empathy light. It's like, you know, feeling sorry for somebody, but not having enough conviction or a conscience to do something about it. Yeah. So I think, I think that's what we're, we're craving right now are people that actually give a damn about something other than themselves. And sadly, this nation is, is pretty broken that way. You know, we have a lot of people, too many perhaps, that honestly don't care about the person next door, their neighbor, their friend, the other guy on the highway. So we got a lot of work to do. And again, it's just a through line in the book. I, I do believe, and I look back at Nike, I look back at Starbucks and Airbnb brands that I've sort of put my fingerprints in in some way or another. I mean, the Just Do It campaign, oh my God, 32 years ago was, if anything, yeah, it was a self-empowerment message, but it really was turning the lens away from us to 
the public, to the world, right? It wasn't about large molecules of gas trapped in a thin pliable membrane of an anatomically correct midsole, you know? It was inspiration, right? It wasn't just aspiration. It wasn't just want to be like Mike. It was really getting people to think deep. And we didn't realize, I don't think, in that first year, the chords we were striking with consumers until I got a letter, and I always get these dear Mr. Nike letters, you know, about the advertising. So I get those. <laughs> I'm, hey, Mr. Nike. <laughs> That's my new name for you. I'm going to start referring you to that. Right. No, I got all those. And it was kind of dodgy, too, because what the, oftentimes they had uh, creative ideas, right? And you, could, you couldn't do anything with them because the agency might already be working on it. So we had a process that I'd, I'd look at it lightly and just send it back and say, our agency comes up with the ideas. Please point them over there. And, and here's their, their contact information. But this one letter stood out. It was a woman who was gushing about how much she loved the new campaign and how it gave her the courage to finally divorce the lousy man she'd married 20 years earlier. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Breaking up homes. Oh, my God. I remember looking at that going, are you kidding me? And no, I just just do it. (laughs) Yeah. And then not very long after that, I got a cease and desist letter of sorts from Nancy Reagan's uh, foundation, you know, that we're putting children's (laughs) minds in the gutter. So, yeah, I have a whole file of weird letters. I, we, we got a cease and desist from Mr. Rogers, you know, once because we did a spoof on his neighborhood with a campaign with David Robinson, Mr. Robinson's neighborhood. Right. I remember that spot. Anyway, yeah, if we weren't being boycotted or if we hadn't irritated somebody in six months, we weren't doing our job at night. You're not trying. That's right. Yeah, no, you play it safe and you're, you're invisible. You can't be heard. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, wow. Touched on so much there. I mean, you know, it's it's you have such a, an incredible backstory and history, and you know, you've 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 sort of referenced, you know, some of the great brands that you've worked on, and you know, whether it be Nike or Starbucks, and some of the great people you've worked with, whether it was your agency Whiting Kennedy, I believe, right, and and of course, you know, fantastic, you know, athletes like Michael Jordan, for example. I mean, how were some of those? This is a broad question, but I mean, how? How was your journey? When you think back on your journey as a as a business person, as a marketer, as a as a thoughtful you know leader in the world of brands, I mean, what were some of those you know one, two, or three stories that really you look back and you say, you know what, th- that was a priceless and valuable experience. I'm glad that happened. No, there have been a few of those. I think on the Nike side, it was I don't know being hired at the ripe age of, I think I just turned 30 to run Nike's advertising program. That sounds like a lot, but the whole budget in 1987, 88 was $8 million. It wasn't a whole lot of money. Right. And I just do a campaign with 2 million in production and 7 million in media. I think when the agency cracked the code on that, the brief was simply open up the access point because Nike was, was really narrow. It was a bunch of guys that could run six minute miles and not breathe hard, you know, and hold a meeting while running, you know, selling shoes to guys just like them. And Reebok came along and clipped us with this aerobics category and a shoe called the Freestyle and a few other things. We dropped from 1.25 billion in revenue to about 800 million, like a rock. That's significant. That's a scary uh, fall right there. Yeah, and most people don't know. They think Nike's been perfect forever, and, and Nike was anything but perfect in '85 and '86. So Knight had to lay off, I don't know, it was 10 or 12 percent of the company. But more importantly, we had to figure out a way to com- combat them and come back, but not lose who we were. And, and that was this sort of inflection point for the company that was, I mean, just do it feels like an ad campaign. It was reflective of a fundamental repositioning of the company because we weren't just talking to, you know, 15 to 24 year old males anymore. 
And the more we twisted or we bent the edges of what that meant, you know, creatively, whether it was like the first commercial of an 80-year-old runner, Walt Stack in San Francisco, who ran 17 miles a day, joking about you know, people ask him if he, how he keeps his teeth from chattering the wintertime, running bare-chested across the Golden Gate Bridge, and he says, I leave him in my locker. Kind of <laughs> it was the first ever use of humor ever by Nike that I could see and all the work it had done. It was always like serious guys in a sweaty gym, you know, locker room. And uh, so that was a big inflection point for me. But the hardest campaign and the other one was, was A, keeping that alive and not killing it, right? And we only spoke just to it twice in the seven or eight years I ran the program. And I noticed the first time we actually put a voice to it, it fundamentally changed it. It sounded like somebody you might know or, or worse, someone <laughs> you don't want to hear, you know, uh, just a voice might be too authoritative or too demanding or whatever. So it was always left as a suggestion. But to really crack the code on the women's market, we had to create this campaign, not ironically, called Empathy. And that was the internal code word for that campaign. And Janet Champ, Charlotte Moore, and an amazing team at Wyden and Kennedy. And there were only 25 full-time employees at Wyden when I joined Nike in 1987. It was a tiny little team. So we set out to do some great work. But I think it was, it was finding that arc you know, where strategy and creativity met. You know, it wasn't just being creative for the sake of creative. A lot of people do that. But it was actually having a burning need to do something, to build the business, you know, globally, to come up with some kind of way to define ourselves, but to resonate as deeply as we possibly could. And I think that was, I think that was one. And then Starbucks was, you know, I knew nothing about retail when I went there. I had no idea. I met Howard by sharing him my manuscript of the first book, asking him to shoot holes in it. So I sent it to five CEOs and I didn't know five different industries. I didn't know anything about a coffee house. And he turned the tables and asked me if I wanted to be his chief marketing officer. This was 95. And I think Starbucks had just opened his third store in New York City that day. So, and he's an amazing guy, a hard guy to say no to. But what I learned from him is compassion. And again, empathy, how he treated part-time minimum wage employees, you know, giving them health care, health care in 1988 when they didn't, you know, ask for it recognizing same-sex marriages, providing stock equity ownership to all employees, no matter how many hours he worked. So to me, that was a life lesson, not just in business, but a life lesson to kind of, you know, to live and lead with empathy is a very powerful thing. And, and here we sit today in 2020, and that's about as timely as you could want it to ever be, the need to do that at all levels as individuals and leaders. We, we just have to get there. You know, the word that keeps coming to mind as I listen to you talk is the word humanity. And, you know, this idea, you know, whether we talk about it in terms of empathy or compassion or any number of things, you know, it's it's how do we recognize or how does a brand or how does a company, how do we as people recognize each other and respect each other's, you know, common humanity. And, you know, it feels to me as though the, the brands and the organizations that are going to win in the future are going to start seeing me as a human being and they're going to start serving me as a human being and, and demonstrating that they see me, they get me and my community and they can be start. They can, they can, they finally have the opportunity and the time if they have the courage to take it, to be truly part of the solution and, and not part of the problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I love that, that analogy, you know, pay attention to me, understand me. Don't just target me. And, right. and, I, and I have a you know a bone to pick with a lot of the way sort of surveillance capitalism has sort of come to be in, in terms of how it's used. And, and you know, it's not that hard to get to know anything about anyone. Right. 
And I'm tired of brands and maybe they do kind of know what I'm thinking in that moment or what I want or what I'm looking for. But I admire companies that know how to sell without selling. Exactly. They just get it and they send off enough cues and there's never a hard sell. And this is particularly tough in the technology world, you know, Silicon Valley. And I've been helping companies in San Francisco, Seattle, London, Tel Aviv. And I've been pounding away at this for quite a while. And it's really hard, you know, in the, it, with an engineering mindset, a product mindset, which is critical to those companies. I mean, you got to no, no, no company starts out going, I'm a brand. I mean, yes, you are. But you start with a great product and you got to, you know, you know, just deliver on it consistently. And over time with the right people and consistency, you develop trust, and you develop a brand. But I've never seen it so difficult and so hard to crack that code, particularly now that we're swimming in data. And, and I think a lot of us are. Are we're data drunk driving at the speed of light and we're dancing on laser beams and pins and needles trying to figure out what the next little thing might be and, and sort of day trading on getting our customer acquisition costs down, you know, whatever our challenges are. And God knows we have to do that, right? What I admire are the companies that actually, to your point, they value being human and actually connecting and engaging with humanity as much as they do about driving comps. And, and that's why I'm particularly proud of what Airbnb did with the Belong campaign. I mean, that work began, the core values work began in December of 2011 with the founders sitting on a patio at an Airbnb listing in Sausalito. And, you know, Brian and Joe and Nate are three amazing founders. And what I love about the, those guys, call them boys back then, I think they're in their late 20s. They cared, you know, and, and we started talking about core values and, and our first pass, they had 22. And I said, you can't have 22. <laughs> right. No, no, I don't remember 22. I, I, I love your, I love your ambition. <laughs> I love your yeah. vision. But took, we need a, you need an editor. <laughs> it took us six months to get them to like 14, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm not kidding. And then I remember I came to San Francisco one afternoon and I called with Brian and Joe and I can't remember who else in the room, a couple of the people. And I said, nobody leaves this room until we get it to 10. That's our goal tonight. I left at 1.45 in the morning. <laughs> I think I, I almost got mugged in the tenderloin too, by the way, trying to find a, a Denny. I missed dinner. Yeah. It took them another three years to get it to like five. What do I love about what those guys did is they, each of those values to them was like one of their yet unborn children. They didn't want to give them up because they believed so strongly in it. So I think what Brian in particular did was with a, with a single stroke, come up with this word belong or to, to, to feel a sense of belonging which as human needs go is about as critical and timeless, particularly now with so many people displaced and to be displaced, homeless and, and refugees. It's pretty powerful. So he, he did what I think great brands do is, is you realize it's not about you. It's about how you make the world better in some way. And he found a way to knit the very business model into one of the, the greatest human needs that we have. You know, having a sense that you, you know, you are, or at least aspiring to, to, to be about something bigger than yourself. I mean, you know, that, that, that's such a great story. We're laughing about it, but I mean, it says so much about what kind of people these guys were, you know, they have 22 commandments. <laughs> it's like Moses coming down. It's like that scene from, from uh, what, what Monty Python was it when, when he came down with, with three tablets and then one dropped. <laughs> that's right. like, well, the, the 10 commandments. <laughs> We didn't need those. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, okay. Well, so much for those. No, man. But I mean, if 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 more companies or more founders or more boards and more 
leader, you know, executive uh, leadership had, you know, that kind of passion and vision for trying to do the right thing. I mean, a lot of these, you know, matters would resolve themselves. I don't yeah. Know. I think, I think great brands have a sense of commitment to the moments and, and the shoulders on which they stand, right? So you join a company that's been around for 10, 20 years, and, and too often, either because of mergers, acquisitions, revolving door at the CEO or CMO or whatever, it's not clear sometimes to employees. And, and I'm working with a, a client now that I, I think is you know struggling with that. You can ask 10 employees the same question. Why does a company exist? You might get 10 different answers, which is never good. But I think there's a, a hue and cry to to find a sense of purpose. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of like purpose washing going on. So don't get me wrong in this. I think it's all noble effort to, you know, relook at your mission statement. And most of them are like triple compound sentences written by a committee of 12 departments and, 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 and it just, you can't remember them. And what I try and do for clients is get it to a single statement, a single sentence, you know, purpose. And I think that's about the best you can do is people might remember that, you know, I think Nike's today is to bring innovation and inspiration to the athlete and all of us. And that's a, just, just a minor variation of what we were doing 30 years ago about the emotional and physical benefits of sports and fitness. And, uh, but I think we've never needed purpose, like a redeeming, noble purpose, not just for customers, but for our own employees and then right now. Because I think the amount of power that's been aggregated in such a smaller and smaller number of hands, both individuals and corporations, is staggering. You know, if you look 20, 30 years. And the question becomes, what are they doing with that power? And I think it's a very legitimate question. So I applaud. Well, absolutely. And by the way, I would feel less, I'm a capitalist, I'm pro-competition, I am anti-monopoly. But that being said, if when it comes to the Googles and the Facebooks of the world, if I actually could own my own data, like I own my own image, the rights to my data, like I own the rights to my image, my likeness, you know, I would feel you know, less uh, threatened by the fact that, you know, they have all that data because I'd be able to monetize it. And, and, but yet, you know, we're not there. Yeah, no. And, and I, I hope we get there. It's uh, when I did meet with uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Chris Cox in 2010, it was about a month before the social network broke. And a friend of mine who worked closely with them asked me to come down because they were using the word brand for the first time. They never actually used the word brand. <laughs> the B word. <laughs> the B word. It's like, what do they mean? Capital B or little B? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But they, they didn't really know, but they did know this. And ironically, it was the first breach of privacy for Mark personally, right? The movie. And you had yeah, right. David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin, dynamic yeah. duo, right? Think about that. Those two are going to go create a movie about your life. <laughs> and, you don't, and you don't and you don't cooperate with them, you know? So they were a little right. nervous and they asked my opinion what I thought they should do. And I just said, you know, there's not a whole lot you can do, you know, you create a stink about it and more people will just watch it. But I left Seattle that morning to fly down there. My, my then 14 year old daughter gave me great advice. And, and my best ideas come from my, my kids, my wife, I'm just a vessel for them, you know? I just we're glad, we're glad you recognize that, Scott. <laughs> no, I, I, I have no qualms admitting that. Uh, in fact, my daughter, maybe if we have time later, I'll tell you she damn near killed Barbie's boyfriend, Ken. But anyway, as I, as I left, uh, she, I said, I'm going to go see uh, the Facebook guys. What should I tell them? And she was just, you know, early social media, been at it for about a year. She goes, okay, two things. One, have them take on human trafficking. Because she was like a lot of girls in America and around the world. Once a year, they, they raise money. They go door to door. And she'd raised a couple thousand bucks. I'm a, I might have primed the pump with 500 to get it going. 
Only uh, 500. Come yeah, on. Well, yeah, well, but anyway, <laughs> then her second one, which really caught me, she goes, tell them that if they promise that no one will ever see something I put on Facebook that I don't want to see it, I'll give them part of my allowance every month. I think she was getting 30 bucks a month. She wanted to give 10 bucks or something. So she was asking for a paid social media platform, right? So 10 bucks a month. So in writing the book, I went back and I did some research and I found that Facebook's revenues in that year, I think it was 2010, for all the advertising, for all the taking all your data and, and subjecting you to all the, you know, the marketing stuff, it equated to $11 and like 35 cents per person. So you, you could have actually created that, right? And, and I, the rumor, I hope it's true, but I think the Instagram guys were trying to do that uh, after the acquisition. And I think they quit in part because they were told that would never scale to come up with something that might be five or 10 bucks a month, but would, would have your privacy protected. So I think that's going to happen. I think that's sort of inevitable, particularly if we close the loop with some of these new privacy laws. That, that are wow. Coming. So I'm sorry. I've just had to interject here for a second because I mean that, I mean, what a dumb fucking idea. I'm sorry. Like the idea that privacy can't scale. I mean, my whole thing is in my anonymity, nothing is worth. And of course I'm old. Like I'm, you know, like these young kids, you know, they want to be famous, right? I, I'm 50. I want to be private. I want to be, you know, so my anonymity is priceless to me. Give me fortune. Don't give me fame. You keep the fame. I'll take the fortune. And I'm willing to pay a premium for my privacy. And the idea that they don't understand that there are hundreds of millions of people like me around the world that would pay 10, 20, 30 bucks a month to get rid of the advertising and keep keep it private is really naive and, and, and you know, misinformed. I mean, just wrong. Yeah. And, or take it further. And my wife's been begging for her own algorithm for a while now, which is hilarious because she doesn't like the targets either. But she knows that she has value to certain brands and industries. You know, they, they could reach out to her for ideas, opinions, give her advertising, but she would ha- you know, sort of opt them in, right? So I think there's, there's much more work to be done. And I think it's going uh, to require that this, this surveillance capitalism, which has been running just sort of unchecked, you know, just, just jumping over fences, going wherever it's going. I mean, the irony in that is, by the way, I don't know if I told you the story. I met uh, Bezos in 1995, about a year before the IPO. I was at Starbucks and he just come into town and was asking for help, trying to build his team. And I think he was chewing around the edges of, of seeing if I was interested. I wasn't because I had just given Howard a three-year commitment. Anyway, and I found him as head of, first head of business development. It was all working. But we did a tour one Saturday morning. I said, look, I'll help you out. I mean, we'll have lunch every once in a while. We'll, we'll just chat. And if I can you know, point you in the right direction, I, I certainly will. So we were touring the, the one of his first warehouse in South Seattle. And uh, it was a Saturday morning. Nobody was there. Nobody was working. And he's just running around all excited, just selling books now. You know, movies would be a couple years later. And he goes, check this out. And he's pointing to a tag you know, that has the books that have been ordered. And they're waiting for them all to be there before they be shipped. And he goes, this family has children. You know, and look at this. They like dogs. You can see a book about dogs and breeds, whatever. Right? So he's exploring all this information. So we're back in his, his office, the Pike Place Market, with he and McKinsey and their uh, golden retriever. I can't remember the name, just the three of us. And sitting there at his desk, he had just given me the tour of this little, this little office. And all, the, all of Amazon's servers fit in a closet by his desk at that point. So surveillance capitalism was humming away from our feet as he began sharing his vision, which I thought he was a little bit crazy, but I could see that it could work, was that he could, with, with technology, create a store in which every time you visited it, the end dial display was made for you. It was only those products that made sense for you. 
So all that collaborative filtering, he went on a hiring spree of so many PhDs. And, you know, if you wonder where your recommendation engine technology comes from, a lot of the heavy lifting came from Amazon in 95 and 96. But that was the beginning of surveillance capitalism. It wasn't Facebook. It was the power of data. And, and I think we just need to put some, some reins around that somehow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's fascinating how far we've come in such a short time. Right. I mean, that wasn't that long ago, how much the world has changed in such a short time. And when you, when I was listening to your story, I, my, I got my first real job, I guess, so to speak in publishing. And we used to go to the uh, ABA show, right? Because as a publisher, you had a booth and, you know, that was a big show for us, you know? And I remember the first year there was this newcomer called Amazon and they had a booth and Jeff was there in the booth. <laughs> in Chicago and ABA. And we were like selling books online. Ha, huh, what a joke. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I got, so, so Jeff rewarded me, he put me in on the friends and family on the IPO. So I put, I don't know, it was 20,000 bucks in or something. And I brilliantly sold when it tripled, you know, about eight months later and I never got back in. So yeah. my son also likes to point out, I think that investment would be $20 million. <laughs> yeah. 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 You, you, you need to consult your kids first, man. I yeah. know, but he, he, was, he was not only nerdy and wonky, uh, he was so far around the corner from the rest of us, right? And I, and I think to some degree Zuckerberg's there too, and a few of these other people in the industry, these disruptors. And they're just around the bend and we're not quite seeing what they see. And I think that's the hardest thing is to help them understand that from their vantage point, they may have overlooked a couple of things, right? Like, what do you do with that power? How do you behave more responsibly with it? Well, my, uh, my first cousin, uh, my dad's side was a was a genius, was a bona fide genius. Uh, one of the interesting things he did with his genius was work um, for the Reagan administration on the Star Wars program, and so you know he's in that world. He's he's that kind of mind. Yet you know when it came to his high school prom, he had his date sit in the back seat. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so so you might be a you might be a genius, but that doesn't mean you can't be a dumbass. Yeah, and you know, and 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 that's you know, us mere mortals hopefully can uh, help steer these folks uh, yeah. away from uh, dumbass things like having your hot girlfriends at the backseat. Yeah, he was probably rocking a powder blue tuxedo too with with a frill. Mm. I think I most have certainly, that. most certainly. <laughs> But isn't that the challenge, though? I think it's this whole EQ, IQ thing, right? Yeah. And and I think very, very few of us are double threats. I mean, we're just like world-class both. And this is why I admired Phil Knight so much. You know, besides being an athlete, and that's where he met the co-founder, Phil Bowerman, uh, Oregon three-time Olympic coach. And, and I think he, you know, and then he went and got his MBA at Stanford, and his thesis was about, you know, this opportunity in the running shoe market. Adidas owned 70% of the market, I think. Anyway, he was, and then he was, he was this wizard at accounting too. So he had his MBA and he was teaching accounting at Portland State, which is actually where he met Penny. He was only, I think, 25 or six, and she was a student at 21 or two, but uh, in his class. And he also had uh, Carol Davidson, who designed the swoosh for 35 bucks in his class. But the point is, he could make a spreadsheet sing. But when I met him in 87, one of the first things he asked me was my opinion about rap music. And was it appropriate for Nike? 87. Think about that for a minute. And he was tracking on the whole genre. 
Here's a guy. By the way, that is that is amazing. That's incredible yeah. that he was so in touch with what was happening on the streets that he that was on his mind. Yeah, and I think he was 49 or 50 at that point. So and and uh, and then he quickly realized the most valuable thing at Nike wasn't you know the patents on Nike Air and all. I mean that was great to have that and they have more patents than anybody probably in footwear. You know all of them combined. It was creativity, and how and not just in marketing. And shoe design, but we had the most innovative creative sales organization I've ever known. Supply chain, distribution, ordering systems, we called it futures. And it was never acceptable to take the business plan you did last year and make it 5% better the next year. It was clean the chalkboard. Now where are you going, right? So this push for innovation, and, and with that came, thank God, an acceptance that mistakes would be made. And oh, that was- Huge, that's huge. Well, but in a positive way, I mean, you make them, you don't get beat up immediately. And in fact, we didn't even have job descriptions when I joined. It was sort of like the Bedouin tribe at Nike. Everything was sort of verbal. So I met with Knight. <laughs> I met with Knight on my first day on the job. I said, hey, I'm, I'm here. Uh, we'd had a couple of good long interviews. And I said, there's kind of a lack of direction here. There's a lot going on. What do you want me to do? And he said, just do great things. <laughs> And, uh, and I looked at him, here's a man that just laid off 12% of the company, you know, a year before, and it was smarting. And I said, what if I make a mistake? And he said, mistakes were okay. And now I, I think I'm being played, right? Cause he is the way he loves a good practical joke or just to push you into the deep end of the pool and see if you can swim, you know, in, in a kind hearted way, but <laughs> he did that. Sure. Little sure. Yeah. But then he got serious and he said, all I ask is you don't make the same mistake twice. And I think that's it. You know, you make the same mistake three times. That was a career limiting move. Twice is like, what is this guy doing, right? But if you look at the power of what Nike created, it wasn't just creativity because creativity without courage is pointless. And you can just frustrate a lot of people by saying, hey, go be great and be creative. And then not have the courage to actually either A, pay them a working wage where they can stay there, or B, produce it, you know, and bet the farm on it. So wisely or, or not so wisely, I gave Wyden and Kennedy the same license, basically. Just go for the fences, shoot as far as you can. And, and certainly there were a number of spots that we ran once because they were colossal mistakes, uh, but we learned from every one of them. And I think that's, that's the, the secret there, I think. You know, you've hit on so many interesting points. I mean, I feel as though... I mean, to the extent, right, that Nike was an innovator uh, in the running shoe category specifically. But then for Phil Knight to have this kind of ethos as a leader to say, you know, to take take risks, you know, do great things. But 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 you, you talked about Nike sort of in sort of every link in the value chain, you guys were innovating. Right. It was like in, and that's the thing. It's like innovation is a word that gets sort of, you know, I guess the, the marketing and the brand, the design folks love to kick it around. But, but you know, what does it mean for the sales rep to innovate? What does it mean for the, 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 the supply chain di- distribution link to innovate, so on and so forth? And it, boy, that does come from the top. Well, and I think part of that, it, I mean, it certainly is cultural. Uh, I was coached for my interview with Knight to avoid using two words. One was marketing and one was research. And that mm. it, it would be pretty limiting to sort of focus too much time on either one of those. Because yeah. apparently he believed in product research, but not in marketing research. So once I was, and I was tongue-tied because I was coming out of an Ogilvy and Mather-owned ad agency up in Seattle. It was a huge agency back then, Cole and Weber. 
And it was all about process and you know, research and insights, strategy and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so a little tongue tied in the interview. So about, I don't know, a few months later, we're at a big conference in Atlanta. I think it was called Super Show, uh, having a beer. And I looked at him and I said, now that I'm safely on board, I'd like to ask you a question. <laughs> I said, I was coached not to, not to say the word marketing uh, in my interview with you. And uh, clearly Nike behaves like a company that knows a thing or two about marketing. I said, what, what? And honestly, we didn't have a marketing department, to be fair. We did not yet. We had all the disciplines, but there wasn't a marketing department. It was more, more or less kind of run by, at that point, the general manager, Tom Clark. Anyway, he said, marketing? He goes, that's what other companies do. We don't do that here. So, and even with Wyden and Kennedy, you know, we had a, a, an agreement, Dan, David, and I did. We would never copy test anything we did. We would never take storyboards to a group of consumers in a focus group and say, what do you think? We had to put our own necks in the line and, and, and trust in our gut. And I think that's also something we miss today as we swim in all this data. We've lost the courage to even have an initial reaction to something just personally, but react to an idea as a human being rather than, well, what did the data tell us? You know, Right, about- right. Oh, so I was actually telling a story yesterday about this exact point, but in a different way. And I'll, I'll try to be quick about it. So a few years back, the folks, um, I don't know if you're familiar, there's a very famous kind of art licensing show called Surtex. It's at Javits every uh, year, at least it used to be. And the folks that run it, uh, I want to say it was Emerald Exhibitions. They were trying to figure out how to bring uh, graffiti art, street art, you know, much more contemporary art forms into this art licensing show, which tends to be, you know, unicorns and rainbows and a lot of, you know, female graphic designers who are selling their or licensing their work to, you know, printmakers of, you know, Hallmarks or, or, or Nordstrom's or whatever. And so anyway, they, they gave us this 1000 square foot area to bring in, you know, these amazing contemporary artists, street artists, graffiti artists. and we were the hit of the show, of course, because we were the coolest, most cutting edge, you know, artwork there. And this woman, uh, I want to say she was from uh, Nordstrom's, but but I talked to so many, I, I forget now who who it was. But it was one. It was either Macy's or Nordstrom's, one of the big department stores. And this woman comes in. She walks right up to this art, this big display we had of this one particular artist and their art. And she walks up and she says, "That's incredible." who is this artist? They're perfect for us. I love it. This is a woman that heads up all the licensing for this big department store. And I said, oh, well, that, that is, you know, artist XYZ. And yeah, they're fantastic. I'm I'm excited to see that you, it's resonating with you. Um, And she said, oh yeah, no, this is perfect. Uh, Tell me how many Instagram followers does this person have? (laughs) <laughs> and it was at that point I realized I was fucked. <laughs> and so was the artist, right? Because this person totally in a moment and in that second disregarded their how many years of experience and expertise, the visceral reaction they had, you know, they her instincts, her experience, her intuition told her everything was right about this artist for this organization. And then when it came to the Instagram following and I said to her, I said, well, this artist has 35,000 Instagram followers. And then immediately her energy shifted, said, oh, only 35,000? God. All right. Yeah, isn't that crazy? And I mean, I could unpack this for an hour, but I, you know, I tried to explain to her, it's like, 
listen, you know, Banksy's and the shepherd fairies and the, you know, like th- these are one in a million, you know, and by the way, having a full time, having a large Instagram following is a full-time job unto itself. You're the marketer. They're the artist. Their job is to create the art. It's your job to drive the traffic. But of course, you know, a lot of marketers, right? Cause we're not in the risk taking business. I think a lot of marketers and brands these days look at some of these metrics and this data as a, as a gauge for risk. It's like, oh, you know, million followers, less risk. Right? Well, I think that I'm with you totally on that. It's kind of disheartening to hear that. I think it's what I, and again, I'll point at this next generation, millennials and, and others to follow them. I think they'll probably do the same thing. I think we, thank God, we're still as, as a species, humans, we're, we're curious, most of us. Some of us are willfully ignorant now. We don't want to learn anymore. That's roughly a third of us. But so I say two thirds of us are still pretty curious, want to open up, you know, Whereas Dan Wyden used to say, which is a great line, by the way, I saw him inducted into a Hall of Fame once and he was all nervous. He gets up there and he's just, oh, shucks. This is, you know, like 20 years ago when he was really uncomfortable talking about the success of Wyden and Kennedy. And he goes, I don't even know what I'm doing here. Uh, he goes, all I know is I asked my employees whether they've been with me for three months or three years or 15 years, show up to work every day, stupid, ready to learn, Right. Don't come in with all the ideas, all the proven ideas, the proven concepts. Let's all just kind of bend our minds open. So what you had at Wyden and Kennedy, and and I think this is good fodder for anybody, is this willingness to let the world in, right? And and if you had power, if you were a creative director, associate or whatever, you literally had to kind of watch yourself in these meetings, particularly with the young creatives, because they they had a Petri dish and and they let people go. So, you know, it was pretty unusual for Wyden and Kennedy and Nike to choose Spike Lee for a commercial with Michael Jordan in 1987 with the Spike and Mike stuff, right? He had one movie out, She's Got a Habit. It was running late at night on BET. And it was a complete underground thing, you know, shot by his brother. It was the same black and white, same camera equipment. I think we gave him a Lumacrane for one of the, one of the spots where he's hanging from the rim. But the point is, what I loved about Wyden and Kennedy and Nike is we did not go looking in the established places for what we were trying to get. And in the early years, Nike eschewed hiring shoe designers. And if you had an MBA and you were on the, on the interview circuit, I would, I would tell the client, I'd say, keep that down low on the reason why you think you, you belong here. We're looking for people that have intuition. Maybe you're an athlete. Maybe you really love sports. But what I, the point I'm trying to make here is the willingness to make discovery and to find something nobody else has seen yet, and it hasn't been validated at the highest level yet, right? But because it is new and fresh and meaningful, and and it just sort of makes you stop and think, and and that's why I look at the kids today, and it's like you know they don't want to go to the same restaurant every night. Most of them don't. They want to try Vietnamese. They want to try some North African food. They want to try whatever, and I admire that. So I think we need to fuel that as best we can, even though social media tends to uh, kind of move us toward these paths where everybody's listening to and following the same person. Yeah. I think about so many of the things we've talked about, right. And, you know, whether we start at the beginning and we go back to some of the things we talked about in terms of the, the, perhaps the blessing and curse of technology and the threat and, 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 you know, what have you that, these companies like Facebook have and, 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 and Google or what have you, they have our data, what have you. And, you know, it's so tempting to want to try to find a, a silver bullet. Uh, you know, maybe it's tempting for government to step in, what have you. And 
for me, and I, you know, I'm a dad, I've got two young kids, you know, I look at their education and I feel like as a country, and maybe that maybe brands can step in on this too. I don't know, but it feels to me like the best hedge against existential threats, whether it's, you know, propaganda, misinformation, you know, disinformation is a, is, is a world-class education system. Exactly. Totally agree. If you look at what happened, you know, with the, the 2016 election in terms of interference, be it Russian or whoever, and there was a lot of that, we now know, but in terms of just, you know, willful disinformation meant to divide, particularly the United States, but it wasn't just here. It happened in Poland a year before us. It, it happened within the Brexit vote. It happened in, you know, literally half a dozen other democracies a year or two around us, right? So Putin's pretty crafty, pretty smart. His internet research agency did a great job of that. What I think is troubling to me is we didn't, we still haven't responded, right? So if you, if you research the Poland election, because they, they elected a strong arm authoritarian in 2015, right? And one of his first moves was to try and get the CEOs, the heads of the biggest internet companies, broadcast print to actually report to the treasury department. Now tell me if that doesn't put chills down your spine, right? But what, what Poland did when they finally realized all of this dis disinformation leading up to the election, which looked like it was coming from Polish citizens and Polish action groups and whatever, the servers were all in St. Petersburg, Russia. They were the first to really trace that, right? So what did they do? Within six months in the public school system in Poland, they had curriculum around the internet and around how to really know when you're looking at something, whether it's true or not and how to actually look for multiple sources, right? Show me that in the U.S. public education system. Does it exist yet? In some private schools, yes, but we should be teaching that from the third grade up, right? Well, I'll see you and raise you one because I feel as though if we were teaching, well, that from, you know, your early years, as well as some more, even more basic things like, dare I say, a, a foreign language, dare I say, uh, even, dare I say, desi design thinking, mm -hmm. right? If our kids were, were, were trained, you know, and taught, you know, along with, uh, well, I guess now, you know, it was, uh, what, what I guess what they're calling it, uh, it's leaving me now, but uh, what's the acronym? It was not SPARK, but it, what was it? STEM. STEM, right. And, and now it's STEAM because they finally put the art back in there. Uh, right. right. Because steam, uh, you, the arts were out of it. Right. It was uh, science, technology. Yeah. And so but they finally put the arts in there finally. But the point is, is that, you know, we're raising kids with very one dimensional, perhaps, you know, feels like we need to raise a citizenry that is multidimensional who can that they can smell bullshit and think for themselves and be critical. But of course, the power structure that's it's not in their best interest to raise kids that can can think critically. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. And I, I think it's been you know researched to death that if you teach a child a second language in their first five years, they have a, a higher capacity to do more abstract things later in life. It's sort of these I don't, I'm not a neuro you know, psychologist or scientist, but it apparently that was your uh, your first job, right? Yeah, exactly. But uh, no, it just it just wires your brain in a different way. And I firmly yeah. believe music does the same thing, right? Because that's yeah, exactly. Language. And I think yeah. design is the same thing. Yeah. And what I love about design is it teaches you once you fall in love with it and somebody exposes you to it or, or photography, whatever, you know, pick it, whatever uh, gets you going. You have an awareness of something now. You're looking for that thing. 
you're looking for that pattern. You're looking for that break. You're looking for that association, or you're looking for just the beauty and the splendor and the awe of something, right? Instead of just going through the paces. And I'm totally with you. I think we need to really rethink that. I think we need a, uh, some kind of MacArthur project or something around in uh, in these poor kids in the last year what they've been through. There's probably been a never a more important time than than now to rethink uh, how we're educating our kids. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. You know these frames that we use, right? These lenses that we use to see the world through. And you know earlier we were talking about we were talking about how uh, some of these brands and organizations can hopefully you know be part of the solution versus part of the problem. And, 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 and part of that gets to this idea of them seeing me and just my own personal mission. Like if we could figure out a way for these organizations, these businesses to not see me as a consumer, but to see me as a human being, how many meetings, how many, you know, you and I have known each other a long time. We've, we've worked together at various points, but we've been in marketing and communications our whole life. It's always consumer this, consumer that. It's it's never human the human being, you know. It's like, and I feel like if 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 brands and organizations can just change the lexicon, could change the parlance, could change the jargon away from this very dehumanizing word called consumer, a very one uh, one dimensional dehumanizing term, consumer, and start referring to me as to what I am, which is a human being, it would just have a psychological shift that could be really powerful. Totally agree. When I was in uh, the journalism school and I started studying advertising and kind of falling in love with it, I bumped into the, the writings of David Ogilvy and, and anybody in marketing, if you, the young people, maybe not so much aware of who he was, but great writer. And I, I had to read Confessions of an Ad Man uh, as one of my early coursework. Uh, and I think it was 1957 or something, but he had two really interesting things. But the one that he said that got me most was, he said, you need, you need to respect the consumer. For she is your wife. <laughs> that sounds incredibly sexist, and it was in that moment. What he was trying to say is these these aren't inanimate things. These are real human beings, right? Yeah. yeah. And, more, and more recently, I've been working with some really smart um, investigative journalists in a section of my book on storytelling and bringing truth to power and the need for all that. And it goes back to Facebook and these companies, too, is that behind every statistic is a human being. Yep. And we forget that, right? We're all just, you know, or in the Kaiser work that we did and you and I worked on together. I remember Debbie Cantu made the comment after we did the insights work. There was a consumer at some point in there in one of the focus groups. I think it was in Atlanta and Buckhead somewhere. And, and, I, and I remember looking over at Debbie when this person said it. And she said, I just wish my healthcare company would, would respect me as a human being and not a profit center. Yeah. Right. Don't treat me like I'm just right. Powerful. And on in that work, we also found that just, you know, for the doc in his eight or nine or 10 minutes or the, or the nurse practitioner, whoever's with you, just to look you in the eye and say, is everything else okay? You know, you come in for your knee hurt or you've got something going on, you got some, you know, bad cold, maybe some, some cough, whatever. Uh, and, and we did play with that a bit. And it, we found that, and just as a human being again, sometimes we forget to ask that question. You know, is everything else okay? And because there's a lot of people out there that aren't feeling okay. And just to know that someone else is curious enough or engaged enough or aware enough or present enough to ask that question can make a big difference. So the bar to me is very, very low in terms of what we can do as individuals and, and organizations. We just need to, and then again, I'll have to send it to you. One of my favorite chapters is simply titled Be Superhuman. And what I mean by that is to be all of what I just said. 
to be present, fully present in the moment, whether it's with your kids, you know, your spouse, your team, you know, even in yourself, like what's going on, right? And that chapter opens with a, a, a quick little anecdote about Michael Jordan and watching him interact with a group of kids that had just just piled up outside the forum. We were shooting what was one of the first, you know, the Hair Jordan commercials, which kind of became the Space Jam thing five years later. But no one was supposed to know. This was like 1991, I think. There weren't many cell phones. And it was a Sunday morning. And we we're just trying to get them out of there. Then somebody, somebody knew as so we step outside, there's probably a good 150 kids. And I look across the parking lot and I could see another 50 to 70 running, you know, across <laughs> the parking lot, yeah. right? with, with basketballs in hand or posters or whatever. So he goes over and starts signing. And I realize we're both in trouble because he has to be back at the team hotel, you know, promptly and they have schedules to keep. So finally, uh, I said loud enough for him and, and the people around him to hear that we didn't know they'd be there. Really sorry about it. Michael has to go. So we step back toward the car and I look back and Michael turns and then he stops, you know, a few feet back from this rope that Pitka's production crew put up to kind of manage the crowd. And he stares out into the crowd for a good minute. Like and it felt like 10 because I didn't know what was going on. And I thought, <laughs> You're like, Mike, I'm going to get fired, man. Come yeah. on. No, no, just fine. Because the team will get fined. He'll get fined. Then it'll come to right, 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 right. Yeah. Like 50 grand or something. So he finally turns and I said, do we forget somebody? Because sometimes these athletes, they have a, a posse that travels with them. They got friends I'm going to stop by, do whatever. And Michael always, Michael never had a big posse when I worked with him, which was just amazing, right? And he looked at me and he goes, no. He goes, I, if I know some kid has been waiting hours to see me and I can't get to him, I at least want to look him in the eye. Yeah. I mean, think about that. And this is the very moment when Barry Bonds was charging kids for an autograph and he had to buy his brother's autograph at the same time, right? Or something to that effect. So here's a guy that didn't have to do it, could have put a ball cap down, just walked away and didn't, right? So I think that you don't have to be Michael Jordan to be superhuman. We all have people in our world that look up to us, right? Uh, more than we probably know. And they're going to be total strangers too. Just help somebody in some way and uh, make their day a little better. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about the future. I, I was less so four years ago. When I started writing this book, watching get decimated and, and empathy viscerated. Uh, but I think the pendulum starting to swing the other way. Well, you know, and I agree. And I'll, I'll share this. So when, you know, Kamala and Joe were giving their acceptance speech, so to, so, so to speak, it was that first public talk uh, after the election. And you know, my wife and I are, are, are watching this, you know, we're just thrilled. And of course we are wanting our kids to sit down and watch it too. This is history, right? This is, this is epic, right? Well, my daughter's eight, you know, and, 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 and for the listeners who don't know, you know, Scott, my kids are adopted. They're African-American. So of course we want to, we want them to see history unfold. My eight-year-old daughter and my three-year-old son. And my three-year-old son's a maniac. He doesn't care. Like he's running around. Okay, fine. We'll we'll cut him some slack. But my 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 eight-year-old, you know, she she's she's trying to care. Like, but she's fidgeting. She's doing whatever eight-year-olds do. And and I realized that my wife and I were were getting, you know, we were almost like like worried and offended that the kids weren't taking this so seriously. And then I finally checked myself, and then I turned to my wife and I said, you know what? I said. Here's the deal. This is their reality. Like my daughter, her first president was a black man, right? Her third vice president is, is a black woman. 
Like this is normal for them. Isn't that great? This, this is why I'm hopeful. This is why we need to stop freaking out because the world has changed. We're just old enough that we remember how hard it was and how crazy it's been. But for them, it's the new normal. Absolutely. I remember we were at the um, inauguration for Obama and that was a cold weekend, by the way. <laughs> so Chicago in the winter is no joke, man. Well, this, no, this was DC. You know, the inauguration. Oh, okay. oh, oh, the inauguration. Oh, right, right. Oh, sure. Yeah. And we did do the home state ball though uh, that next night. But anyway, so we're in the hotel lobby. I can't remember where we were. We're like right there at the heart of it. It's jammed, and there's there's a pretty good mixed group of folks in there. And you know, everybody's looking at the the, the screens, and I can't remember what was going on that night. And then Obama comes on the screen, and I'd been watching these the two kids. These they're I don't know how old they might have been 10, 12. Uh, black kids who were kind of running around, just kind of just being kids, doing their thing. And suddenly they just turned and were riveted on the screen, just absolutely riveted on the screen. It was just, they didn't move. And then, then they became the best behaved kids in the place. So the next day, it was a Monday, I think it was, it was, they called it a national holiday in DC. So everybody had the day off. So I'm walking around the mall and doing all the monuments with my son and my daughter and my son points out, and we're watching this too, because there's a lot of families there. And he goes, you know what's cool about this, Dad, is someday these statues and the monuments, they won't just be for white people. Mm, wow. Which, which was a really interesting idea. So if you think about the irrelevancy on some level of what our institutions have been, and some of it really bad for so long, that was just a moment that I'll never forget. It was like that was a pivot, like things just tilted in that moment. So it just felt great in that moment to say, you know, we, we did it finally. And now having not just a woman vice president, but of, of color and, and her background, Kamala, and she, I just love her. I think we are, we're in better shape than I would have dreamed a couple of years ago. I was, I was a little pessimistic. Yes. Well, uh, you know, we won this one <laughs> and, you know, it was a, it was an epic election. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I am definitely, I, but I've, I think I'm naturally an optimistic guy, you know, just generally, but there were dark moments, certainly. Uh, and we have to be vigilant. You know, we don't get the democracy we deserve. We get the democracy we make. I think, you know, this last four years uh, woke people up to just how fragile our democracy really can be and is. So, but that being said, I, I, you know, I, I am optimistic now. And um, I was, you know, more, more, you know, who knows what's going to happen with the mail-in voting. I, I, I would like to think, you know, it'd be nice to think that this is the election that mail-in voting becomes the, the, the rule rather than the exception. Can you imagine if we can figure out how to actually get mail-in voting at scale? You know, like that would talk about democratizing the vote. Yeah, we have to do that. We got to find a way. And I think just what you're doing, too, with the podcast, I think what we have to do, all of our voices have to be heard, right? And when I think about all the, the effort, I mean, this book has taken me a couple of years longer than I thought it would just because it's such a moving target. It's, you know, we're all here to serve, right? I think you were saying that earlier. And how we serve is sort of up to us. You know, some of us serve in the military. Some of us serve as an educator. Some of us serve in medicine. Some of us serve our community in some way, Right. But I think until we get to that point where we realize, and I think you were using it in the context of corporations, it's just not consumers, right? We're here to serve, you know, customer service. It's a really good thing to do with, with our children is to, is to instill in them that sense that we're here to serve. It's not just about us. We're here to serve others. 
particularly those in the fringes and those who don't have what we have, those that are maybe less advantaged in some way. And I think that's that's the long-term best hope I have for uh, everything, life and work and all that, is if everybody believes deep down they have a commitment to somebody other than themselves, right? Uh, that this narcissism that we seem to be swimming in these days is really toxic. I'm pretty fired up about that. And I love it when I see it in people, when they really, they, they could be doing a million other things, but they're actually in the moment helping somebody do something else, or they're taking the power of their corporation and doing something phenomenal with it, you know, getting engaged. So I think we're, we're tipping towards some kind of a, a renaissance of sorts. Maybe that's not the right term. Uh, I don't know if there's some, some bad Medici family hanging in the edges here, but <laughs> I would have thought well, it's a bit of an, an awakening maybe. Yeah. You know? No, I actually predicted the internet also would be this great, you know, awakening that we'd all become smarter. We'd have friends across time zones and cultures, and we'd be more engaged and aware of people, you know, less advantaged than us. And we're still not there, you know, and that's Jesus 20 years later. Right. So we've got work to do. So I just, I'm just saying, I applaud you for, for putting your voice out there. I think we all need to do it. We all need to step up. We need to speak up, uh, even if it's just in a conversation with friends and uh, keep pushing. Right on, Scott. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for those words. And thank you today for sitting down and talking with us about uh, you know your life, your experience, your books. Where can people find you uh, online? Well, I think it's Brandstream, my company, brandstream.com. There's a link there. Email is scott at brandstream.com. Happy to talk to anybody. I try and you know every month I get, because the book made its way to business schools you know, all around the world, which is crazy still being taught. And I had a professor from NYU call me about six, eight months ago now, maybe it was, oh, it was right before COVID. It was almost a year ago. And say that she's not only still teaching it, she took the time to reread it cover to cover. And she goes, all the principles are there. They're still timeless. And, you know, it's kind of daunting because then you get these emails from these undergrads and grad students asking for help. And I get, I don't know, two, three, four, five of them a week. And some of them are, you know, it's a five minute commitment to read. <laughs> <laughs> They send you their thesis. They send you yeah, yeah. working on and yeah, I'd really love your help, you know? So I, I answer them all. I try and get to them. I, I can't do them in the first day I get them. But, but I think that's the other way we can serve, right? Is when people do ask for help, you know, shame on us for not trying to find a way to help them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, my friend, you've helped me a lot today. And I know you've helped our listeners out a lot today, hearing your words, your sage experience advice, wisdoms, and experience, please come back. Happy hopefully we haven't, hopefully we haven't scared you away. You'll, uh, you'll come back again. Yeah, Maybe no. when the book drops, uh, we'll, Let's we'll do, do another episode and uh, promote the book, but Scott Bedberry, thank you for your time and your service. And, uh, we'll, uh, talk to you soon. I hope. Thanks Scott. Take care of yourself. Be safe. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at NotRealArtWorld. If you're an artist, be sure to apply for our 2021 artist grant at NotRealArt.com. Sourdough, out.